we have the opportunity this morning to look to God's Word and be feasting upon the truth of this precious book in a message I think will challenge each and every one of us with regard to our responsibility and obligation before both God and man. Some of you may be a little too young, although you probably have seen on film or videotape many times the words of Muhammad Ali, who spoke most famously four words that he believed described himself. Do you remember what they were? I am the greatest. And he said it a few times, didn't he? You know now, of course, that he is beset with Parkinson's disease, which obviously shows that he was not the greatest. There are so many people who have assumed through the years that they were invincible. And he was certainly at the top of the list, believing himself to be invincible, not just in the ring, but even as a man against a society. I am the greatest. It's fairly proud, isn't it? I remember as an unregenerate person trying to decide what it was that I might do for my career and in similar pride I often thought to myself I am going to become the world's greatest sportscaster and so I went to Arkansas State University in Jonesboro to pursue that, which obviously, if I had been thinking through that, would have realized that Arkansas State University might not have been the greatest place to prepare oneself to become the greatest sportscaster in the history of the world. I soon became aware during my freshman year that Christ was indeed the greatest. And as my heart was changed, I realized how proud I was of the accomplishments that I was pursuing so vigorously to attain. And as I thought about our text this morning, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34, my mind brought me back to those times when I thought of myself, I am going to make a major contribution to the sports world. The subject of whom or what is the greatest occupies this very text. And if I had, in my youth, understood the concept of greatness, I would have understood that there is only one who is great, and that is our God. And that everything else and everyone else pales 
in comparison to the Great One. No, I'm not referring to Wayne Gretzky. I'm referring to the Great One, our God, the Lord, Jesus Christ. You can tell how impactful our world has become with sports figures and entertainers and actors and political people. When you hear the concept of greatness being bandied about by all of those who really aren't great at all, including myself. We hear a lot about this concept of greatness. I can remember a number of years ago that when the San Francisco 49ers were having their heyday, that all the way from the owner, Edward DeBartolo, down through the coach at that time, Bill Walsh, who is now the president and general manager, how much of a genius Bill Walsh was, how great Edward DeBartolo was as the owner, bringing in all of these great players, how great the organization was, how great their legacy would be because of all of their Super Bowl championships. And now, of course, we see that it is a team on decline, having lost more games than they won last season and probably destined for similar things this season. And again, you hear from the sporting world, as other places, how great people are supposed to be and how great entities, franchises, sports teams. We hear often about the United States of America that it's the greatest country on earth. And there are numbers of reasons why people say that, mainly because they would say America is great because it allows me to be as materialistic as I want to be. And yet when you define greatness biblically, all you have to do is go to a text like this and find out what greatness is all about. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, that is Jesus and the Sadducees. And recognizing what recognizing that he had answered them well, ask him, what commandment is the greatest of all? Jesus answered, the greatest is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second greatest is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else beside him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. 
After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Our text this morning is so easy to outline. You have in verses 28 and 29 and verse 30 and 31 really a very simple thing, a question and an answer. And this is a pattern, isn't it, that has developed as the religious leaders of Jesus' day have been asking him questions in order to entrap him in a dubious answer. And this is like the other two that we've just studied, a question and an answer. And then in verse 32, you have a response of the teacher of the law that was questioning Jesus, as well as verse 33. And then you have a response from Jesus in verse 34. So very easily, you have a question and an answer in verses 28 to 31, and then a response of the teacher of the law in verses 32 and 33, and then a response of Christ in verse 34. You say, well, couldn't you come up with a more snazzy outline than that? Well, I think sometimes preachers spend far too much time outlining than they do studying the text. It's really not hard to figure out what's going on here. Jesus was asked a question. Jesus answered the question. The one who asked the question gave a response, and then Jesus gave a response to his response. It's as easy as that. But the question itself, while being far from easy, is the most profound question about greatness that could ever be asked. What is the greatest commandment of all? I mean, just the asking of that question exudes profundity. What is the greatest commandment of all? Notice that the teacher of the law did not ask the question, who is the greatest of all? Muhammad Ali didn't ask the question, who is the greatest of all? He assumed he knew the answer to that question. We know who the greatest is, all, uh, is of all, the one who is answering the very question about the greatest commandment. For no one could do the things that Jesus Christ has done as we have seen him do it, both in his teaching and in his power, in these 12 chapters of Mark's gospel. It is so obvious to anyone who even casually reads this gospel of Mark who is the greatest of all. And when the greatest of all answers a question about what the greatest commandment of all really is, then it's not hard to determine exactly where he's going to go. Here's what he says. The foremost, the greatest commandment of all is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
the second greatest commandment is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When you combine the two, there is no other commandment greater than these. He was asked the most profound question that could be asked, and he gave the most profound answer that could be given. Who was the one who was asking him this question? Well, in verse 28 it says, one of the scribes. Now we've already heard from the Pharisees and from the Herodians and also from the Sadducees. And the scribes, not wanting to be outdone, ask a question of their own. Now you remember that the scribes were classically defined as the teachers of the law. They were the ones for whom Judaism would say, if anybody knows anything about the law, it would be these fellows. They would know precisely what the law is all about. And you know that I've told you before that they were so fastidious about the law and its proper interpretation that the scribes and the Pharisees, who would be the ones most keenly aware of the law and its right interpretation, had come up with somewhere around 613 laws. Many of them positive, most of them negative, regarding how to properly keep the law. And if there was anything about the law, it was voluminous. 613 separate items for which a Jew would say, if I'm a law keeper, I'm trying to keep all 613 of these laws. And if this scribe was coming with a pure motive, although Matthew seems to suggest that he's coming to test him, we don't know if that testing was completely negative. It certainly could be. And in light of what the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees were doing, we might assume that this was that, that they were coming once again and for a final time to trap him, to test him. Now you remember that we read this morning already in our time of Scripture reading, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. I do not believe that the Luke 10 passage that we read this morning is a parallel passage to this. I believe it's different. I know it says there that he was wishing to justify himself. I think that's a different occasion, and that's a different time frame, and that's a similar answer, but to a different question. This is unique. In fact, Mark provides us with the most unique details. Matthew does give us a parallel to this, but Mark really fills in some unique things. One of the scribes, a teacher of the law, he heard the argument between the Sadducees and Jesus. And apparently, he recognized that Christ had answered these Sadducees very well. And so he had a question of his own. The most profound question there is, what commandment is the greatest of all? Let's say that he was sincere. He might be asking this question for the purpose of living his life. Let's say that he really wanted to know the answer to that question so that he could be a right interpreter of the law of God himself so that he could then also interpret that law rightly for the people of God around him. 
Jesus, rather than saying something that he might say to the others before if he believed their questions were not coming from pure motives, didn't evade the question, didn't ask a question of his own, he simply gave an honest answer to this man's query. If you're asking me the question, what is the greatest commandment of all, here it is. And in order for us to really understand and unpack what is going on here, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Because this is the passage of Scripture that Jesus initially quotes to this teacher of the law, this scribe. And I love the way Jesus gives the answer to this question because he doesn't simply say in answer to this man's query, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He actually backs up and says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is commonly called in Jewish circles the Shema. The word Shema is a Hebrew word that means to hear. And obviously, Moses was interceding for the people and teaching the people, and he wanted the children of Israel to hear from God. And so therefore, he says in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, listen, hear the word of the Lord, hear what God is saying. The Lord is our God, a term that speaks of the familial relationship between Israel and their God. There's an intimacy of relationship. There's a father-children relationship between Jehovah God and His people. The Lord is our God. There's a possession here. God owns His people. He is their Father, and those people can claim God as their Father. And then he says, the Lord is one. You know that in the time of the birth and the outworking of the Jewish nation, that they lived around people in nations all around them that were polytheists. They believed in multiple gods. Even today, if you were to go to India, as Pastor James Henrich recently did, you would go into a city in which millions of gods would be worshipped by those people. In fact, one of the most interesting things that you could ever hear about is to hear about the place where Mother Teresa had her home for the destitute and dying, right there in Calcutta. And directly across the street from the home of the destitute and dying where Mother Teresa gave the bulk of her life, across the street, directly across, is the Kali Temple, and it's the temple in which millions if not billions of gods are being served and which sacrifices are being made daily to those gods, right across the street. So you have one who purports herself to be a monotheist, one who's serving one God, the Lord is one, and you have right across the street in the Kali Temple those who would say that there are millions of gods. And all of those millions of gods have to be appeased and sacrificed for. I mean, it's the clash 
of two religions. You see, you have some religions in the world who are monotheists. You have the religion of Islam, for which they are monotheists. And then you have the religion of Judaism, for which they are monotheists. And you have the religion of Christianity, for which they are monotheists. And then you have every other religion for which they are polytheists. And what Jesus is doing is he's not just saying that the greatest commandment of all is to love your gods, but it is to love the one God, Jehovah God. You see, there's theological content to this great commandment. It's not just a syrupy love. It's not just the kind of love that you would say, well, just whoever your God is, love him or her or it, for with all your love and soul and mind and strength, do all of that to whoever you've created in your mind as a God or gods. No, there is real content, real theology to Jesus' answer. And on that basis, on that monotheistic God of Israel, namely Jehovah God, namely the God of the Jews, the one God, He is our God, He is one. You shall love, verse 5, the Lord your God. Now, who, now we know who this God is. You shall love Him, not them. You shall love Him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This was the warp and woof of Israel. This was written into the very fabric of their life and worship. You shall worship one God, and it is our God, Jehovah God. He is the God of Israel, and you shall worship this one God, Jehovah God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. <coughs> so when Jesus is asked the question from the teacher of the law, he gives both a theological and a practical answer. The theological one, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord and he is forever rejecting polytheism as a substantive, credible religion. You say, does that mean then that every polytheistic religion known to man today is not credible? That's exactly right. That's exactly what the Word of God says. You cannot be a Christian and worship multiple gods. You cannot ascribe to the Word of God. You cannot ascribe to the Shema. You cannot fulfill the greatest commandment of all unless you affirm that God is one. Now do you see how important it is to affirm the deity of Jehovah God, the deity of God the Father? Now do you see how important it is to affirm the deity of Jesus Christ? For Scripture calls Him God, and that's not two gods, that's one God as manifested in those two persons. And then the Scripture also talks about the person, not the it, the person of the Holy Spirit. And He also is co-eternal, co-existent with God, forever having existed, never having been born, and will never die. So you have 
a monotheistic religion manifested in the three persons of the Godhead and yet one God. That's why Christianity is unique. Islam does not affirm that. Judaism does not affirm that. And so even within monotheism, you have the uniqueness of Christianity which stands above all other religions because when we say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, we know that that, by the very nature of the persons of the Godhead, means that we serve the Trinity of God. And so when we speak of the greatest commandment, the Lord our God is one. We affirm that and we understand that by way of the triunity of the Godhood. That's our theology. That's why it's so important that if you disbelieve that, you cannot be saved. You cannot be a Christian if you deny the Godhood of God. The three persons in the one God. That's why Christianity is both unique and that is why those who would affirm anything else, fall by the wayside of the definition of what true Christianity is all about. Now, where's the practicality of it? The practicality of it is this. Once we affirm who it is that we're to love, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but also the God who has manifested himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who has come to earth to die for sinners, who was then, by virtue of the ministry or role or function of the Holy Spirit, applying the salvation of the atonement of Christ on our behalf, we affirm the one God in that way and no other, and by virtue of that affirmation, when we know who our true God is, then the Bible will allow us to fill out the practicality of that, and that is this, that you should love that God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You see, you can't know how to love unless you know whom to love, and the person that we are to love is God, and it's not a God of our own choosing. It's not a God of our own making. It's not a God of our own creating. It's not a God of our own devising. It's the God set forth in the Bible. And that is why people, when you hear them on television programs and radio programs, and they seem so murky in their understanding of the person of God, they are no doubt not worshiping the God of Scripture. This is what Scripture says about who our God is. And this is the very one for whom... Our greatest command is to love with everything we have. You say, well, when it says there in verse 30, we're to love your God, this triune God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, does that mean that there are four parts to man? And what's the answer? No. No, there aren't four parts to man. This is a way that Scripture speaks, and in so many other places it speaks to this as well, to speak of the totality of man. It, it strings along all of the aspects of man's being to communicate the fullness of what that love is supposed to be. Uh, when Paul the Apostle says that you should, with all of your heart or mind or soul 
or that you should be sanctified in your body, soul, and spirit. He's not talking about a tripartite person. He's not talking as a trichotomist. He's simply stringing along all of the things that Scripture uses to speak of the totality of man, the sum of man. You say, well, how do you derive that? Well, you derive that because when it says here that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, all of those terms are used interchangeably in Scripture to refer to the immaterial part of man. I told you last time that we like to talk about the immaterial part of man as a, as a mission control center, as the, the seed of his personality, the the greatest part of man is the immaterial part of him because it is that which sets him apart from every other creature. And what part is that? It is the part in which he has a mind, a soul, a spirit. He has rationality. He has emotions. He has feelings. He has a way to communicate with his God in a way that others in the creation do not have. And that's what sets him apart. I believe that that's at least some of what defines what you might have heard theologians call the imago Dei, the image of God, the image of God in man. The immaterial part of man is the opportunity for us to understand the seat of man's personality, how he thinks, who he is in his heart. We're not talking when it says there that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, the idea of the pumping station of that that organ that exists in a man's chest. That's not what he's referring to here. He's talking about the heart as the seat of someone's personality. What they're thinking. It's the thinking part of man. And what Scripture does, in order not to be so boring to communicate only one term forever and always, it varies its terms, but it refers to the same thing. And so when he says, with all of your heart... And with all of your soul, that is a synonymous reality. If I were to say, tell me what's in your heart, and then I were to say five minutes later, but tell me what's in your soul. And if I were to say ten minutes later, but tell me what's going on in your mind, I would be referring to the same entity. That is the immaterial part of you. The material part of you is your physical body. That's that that physical presence, the thing in which you can use your senses, your sense of touch and taste and feel, etc. But the immaterial part of you is the part in which this verse is telling us that we must, with the greatest obeisance, with the greatest level of obedience, we ought to respond to loving our God in that way. And though he speaks about strength, that even implies the material part of man. That you ought to use even every physical means at your disposal to worship and love the Lord your God. You know what he's really doing? He's really wrapping up the totality of man. He's saying, man, here is the greatest commandment of all, that you are to love your God in every way. If it's your heart, love him. If it's your body, love him. The body is the 
temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the place in which the Holy Spirit dwells. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that we ought to treat our body as the temple, not just an individual, but the church. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not some physical structure in the Orient, in the East, in Jerusalem. It's actually a resident Holy Spirit who resides in the church. And that is not just four walls and a roof, but people. And so what should we do with everything that we are, with our heart, with our physical body? Romans 12:1, present your bodies a living sacrifice. He's just stringing along everything. He could go on. He could say, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your spirit and with all of your conscience and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. He could string along every single term that we find in the New Testament and several in the Old to speak of the immaterial part of man. You know what he's really saying? Love God supremely with everything you have and everything you are. That's the point. Don't try to read anything else into this but the idea that when Jesus summarizes the greatest commandment of all, he says, you know who your God is now, and you must worship and love him with everything that you are and everything that you have. And the second, verse 31, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does he mean by that? Well, Beloved, this has gone under a tremendous amount of confusion and misunderstanding. I have read a number of writings that say things like this. And you would expect this in the psychological age in which we live, that what Jesus is actually saying, and I could document this for you, I have chosen not to do so because I don't want you to be carried away by someone and their writings, I just want you to know that this is out there, that there are people who actually teach that the only way for you to fulfill the greatest commandment of all is to love yourself. And as a result of loving yourself, then you can figure out how to love others as yourself. And so therefore, you should be involved in the tremendously provocative and arduous journey of loving yourself so that you might find out how to love others as yourself. Let me just say that that is not what this is teaching. In fact, let me suggest to you that that is the opposite of what this is teaching. Jesus would not contradict himself by saying, love yourself and then deny yourself. I mean, if that's all you knew about Scripture, you would say, how can I love myself? How can I be commanded to love myself and then be commanded at the very same time to deny myself, to slay myself, to crucify myself? No, the point of this passage is this. Jesus is speaking to a, a world in which sinners live. And as sinners, we already, by the very nature of our fall in Adam, we already love ourselves to an inordinate degree. And he's basing the very command on what he knows is already true about us, and what is true about us is that we already love ourselves. We, we love ourselves very easily. 
In fact, the whole of the Christian life could be summed up like this. Learn not to love yourself as you already do. Work hard at not loving yourself because that's what you're prone to do every waking moment of your life. And the only way that you can crucify yourself is to continually deny yourself. And the only way to deny yourself is to quit thinking about yourself. And the only way to quit thinking about yourself is to lose yourself of yourself by loving other people. That's the only way. You say, well, I'm not convinced of that. I believe that people actually not only don't love themselves, but I believe that people actually hate themselves. In fact, you may have even said that about yourself. I've been in counseling sessions where people say, I loathe myself. I hate myself. Well, if you were to turn with me in Ephesians chapter 5, you would find out what the Word of God says about this. And this has to be taught, beloved, because we live in a culture in which you're going to be told, either by explicit statement or by implicit living or conversation, that people really do hate themselves. It is not so. Here's what the Word of God says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. In other words, love your wife as though you were loving your own body because you already love your own body, therefore transfer that kind of love to the love that you really should have for your wife. You say, how do you know that it says that? Next phrase, he who loves his own wife loves himself. Verse 29, this is exactly what Paul means. For no one ever hated his own flesh. There it is. As clearly stated as can be stated. No one ever hated his own flesh. What does flesh mean? It just means yourself. Your flesh just means who you are, your body. But what do we do? We nourish and cherish it. That is our bodies, which includes our minds, which includes our emotions, our will, our conscience our soul, we nourish and cherish it. And here's what Christ does. In a sinless, perfect way, he nourishes and cherishes the church. And yet he knows who we are, and he knows what we're all about. We think so much of ourselves, it is a satanic lie to say, love yourself and then love other people as yourself. That's a lie. That can so mess you up. That can so focus you on self that you are doing nothing but feeding the beast of loving yourself. It's a vicious cycle that does not end. No one ever hated his own flesh. No one ever hated his own body. Everybody nourishes and cares for himself because we love ourselves. That's what the fall did to us. That, that's what the fall is all about. It's the opportunity for me to make my own choices, to do my own thing, to walk my own way, to love my own self. And that's what I do, and I do it very naturally. I come out of the womb doing that, and I perfect it as I grow older. That's what I do. You say, well, 
I'm not sure about this. The Word of God doesn't seem to me to be such a heavy emphasis on this denial of oneself, this idea that we are really nothing. I really think I'm something. In fact, I prove it to myself often with all of the things that I do for other people. Well, notice what Paul the Apostle says in Galatians chapter 6. Again, very simply stated, Galatians chapter 6, bear one another's burdens. It's in a context of you looking outside of yourself to someone else, bearing their burdens on their behalf. Your focus is not on yourself but on them. Bear one another's burdens and thus or thereby fulfill the law of Christ. You see, that is a way of Paul speaking about loving your neighbor as yourself because it says you're going to actually fulfill the law of Christ not when you love yourself, but when you deny yourself for the sake of affirming and loving someone else and bearing their burdens. If you do that, you will do well because you're going to fulfill the law of Christ. And he says in verse 3, For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is what? Nothing. He deceives himself. You see how deceptive this is? You see how satanic this is? The world, with Satan as the arch enemy, wants us to believe that what Jesus is saying in Mark 12 is that we, only when we can have the perfecting of the love of ourselves in our minds, then we can reach out and love others. Guess what? If you have this all-consuming desire to love yourself, what's going to happen when those needs come your way? You're not even going to be looking. You're not even going to be seeing it. Because your, your life, your love is going to be consumed upon yourself. You're going to be looking so much inward that you're not going to be looking outward. And so what does he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. What he's saying is, because of what you already do, because of what you already are, look at that kind of love, and when you see how inordinate it is, when you see how all-pervasive it is, when you see how all-consuming it is, then I want you to look at that kind of love, and I want you to turn right around, and when you see the need exists, you flood that person with that kind of love. Flood that person with that kind of love. Then you will know what the Samaritan was all about when instead of passing by on the side like the Levitical priesthood, like someone else, you're going to see that need and you're going to meet it. And not only are you going to just pick up the man, but you're going to bind the man's wound with wine and oil. And not only are you going to do that, but you're going to take him to an inn for which he could also have greater care. And what you're going to do is you're going to say to the innkeeper, and if I don't have enough money now, here's all I have, I'll come back again. And if it costs any more than the, the amount I have, I will give what I owe you so that you can help me care for this man. Boy, that's an incredible love. That's an incredibly pervasive love. That's a phenomenal love. He didn't, he didn't just go the extra mile. He went the extra miles. He could have been perceived as a good Samaritan by, by simply uh, attending to the man and his physical needs right there on the road and then said, you know, I really hope someone else comes by to do the next step that you really need. But he didn't. He, he went the next step, and he picked up the man, and he put him on his own beast. And uh, what's the implication of that? Uh, the man was on his beast, and what did that Samaritan do? He walked. And we don't know how far it was. We know that everywhere they went, they either walked or rode a beast, and if you had somebody else on your beast, then you walked. 
And when you walked, you may have walked several miles. And when you found the inn for which someone would allow you the opportunity to drop this man off into a place of care, they didn't have hospitals like we know of it today, and then you were to bind up this man's wounds better than you did when you were on the road because you didn't have all the resources at your disposal. And then when this innkeeper said, it looks like it's going to be more money than I can bear, he says, you pay whatever you can, and when I come back, I'll repay you. You know what this Samaritan was living out? He was living out the reality of a man who was crucifying his own desires. And he was saying, I'm more intent on fulfilling the obvious needs of this man rather than my own. I'm denying my love for myself, but I know how much my love for myself looks like, and I know what degree I go to love myself, and now I'm going to deny that, but I have at least a picture of it, and now I'm going to show that kind of love to my neighbor. You see it? That's what he's talking about. And beloved, this must have had a tremendous impact on the apostles. Because Paul himself says this in Romans chapter 13. You remember we went through that a little bit last time? We talked about paying your taxes and owe no man anything but love. Well, notice what Romans 13 goes on to say. Verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Incredible. This statement of Jesus, this profound statement of Christ is so pervasive, and it was so all-inclusive for the church that Paul picks up on this theme and he says that if you love God and if you love your neighbor, you've summed it all up. You've fulfilled the very law of God. Isn't that amazing that in two statements Jesus Christ could utter, we would know exactly how to live in this life. Love God, the fulfillment of the first five of the Ten Commandments, and love your neighbor as yourself, the fulfillment of the second five of the Ten Commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. You do those two things, you are going to fulfill the very law of God. You don't have to worry about 611 other laws. It's not that they're unimportant, but if you do those things to the best of your ability every waking day of your life, then you will actually be a fulfillment of the requirement of the law of God. That's amazing. It's amazing how these, how these statements can be whittled down to their essence. In Galatians chapter 5, we have the same idea. Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now it's being reduced down to just one statement. Why? Why isn't it love your God and love your neighbor as yourself? Because by the very manifestation of your desire to deny the love that you have for yourself and you're reaching out to love your neighbor, you're showing the very essence of who God is because that's what God does. But notice the prohibition. But if you bite, verse 15, and devour one another... 
take care that you are not consumed by one another. You know what that is? You know what biting and devouring one another is? Loving yourself. Loving yourself. That's the only way that biting and devouring can occur in the church. When you are in such love with yourself that when someone comes along and does something that you don't want them to do, or they say something that you don't believe is right, or they do something that's a little different than you, then you bite and devour them, and it's only manifesting an incredible love for self. This is a, this is a tremendous, tremendous command. It has implications through the entirety of our life. And that's why Jesus says right here in verse 31, there is no other commandment greater than these. No other commandment. You say, well, how does it, how does it relate to maybe someone who is different than me? Well, it could be someone who's different from you who's not as rich as you, who's not as pretty as you, who doesn't have the kinds of clothes that you do. Or it could be for you looking at someone else and they have better clothes than you do. They have more money than you do. But what are you supposed to do in this world when there's obvious inequity? How do you respond? How do I love somebody denying myself who's different than me and either they're more contemptible in my eyes than I am or someone is looking down at me as though I'm more contemptible than they. What am I supposed to do? Well, James chapter 2 tells us about that. James chapter 2, verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, and I love that, it's now calling this principle of the great commandments being fulfilled the royal law. The royal law. The law of our king. And if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Well, wouldn't you like to have the affirmation of our king saying about you, you are doing well, my child, because you are loving your neighbor as yourself. I know how you love yourself, and I'm seeing how you're denying that love for yourself for the sake of loving others. You're doing well. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. And now he's talking about it. Uh, the same law but with different terminology, the law of liberty. It's the royal law and it's the law of liberty. Oh, this is great. If you have someone who appears to be richer than you are, more beautiful than you are, more together than you are, you're to love them as yourself, not have contempt for them. And if you have someone who obviously is less fortunate than you are, who has less money than you are, who's less pretty than you are, you're to love them as yourself. See, it goes both ways. In other words, Whoever's around you is your neighbor, and whoever is around you is to be ministered to. And notice what the scribe said. He gives a response, verse 32. Right, teacher, 
You have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and the understanding and the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. You say, why did he say that? Well, it was very common in that time. In fact, in the Mishnah, in Abbat, first chapter, second verse, it says that there were three things that gave us the essence of law-keeping. The Shema, sacrifices, and loving your neighbor. Isn't that interesting? When Jesus teaches on this, what does he do? He eliminates the second. Why? Because loving God with all of your soul and loving your neighbor as yourself is satisfying the person of God more than any burnt offering or any sacrifice could ever do. And so this guy realizes that. He knows what Jesus is saying. Just two, and they are actually one, and this is the great commandment of all. And he says, this is even much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wow! And then Jesus has his own statement. When he saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What does he mean? Well, it's a bit obscure, but I think what it means is this. If you have this in your mind... That's good. If you have this as an intelligent affirmation, that's good. Now go out and live this way and manifest that what's in your heart is really what you're willing to do. And if I see you doing this, it's because I believe it's in your heart, and when I see it in your actions, I'll know about you that you are a kingdom citizen. You say, what does that mean? That means that if you say you're a kingdom citizen, you'll actually, in works and deeds, be reaching out to those around you because you'll be loving your neighbor as yourself. 1 John chapter 3. How can a person see his brother in need and not from the very bowels of his being not reach out and help him? The Bible says if he does not, then the love of God does not dwell in him. It doesn't say the, the love for your neighbor does not dwell in you. It says that if you look out for your neighbor's needs and you ignore them, then how does the love of God dwell in you? It doesn't. Because it's so inextricably linked. Because when I act like God, because I love God, then I will reach out to others who need me because I'm God's representative. Boy, what a, what a great commandment. It's so clear. In fact, it was so profoundly clear that verse 34 ends by saying, after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. (laughs) Hey, I'm I'm not asking any more questions. We've been burned three times already in a matter of hours, no doubt. That's it. No more questions. You know what they should have said? Close the book. Let's worship. And let's worship him. He alone has the words of eternal life. He's the great commandment giver. That's what they should have done. And that's what we should do. That's what you should do. You should not walk out of this place without saying about yourself, do I love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, with the totality of my being, and do I love my neighbor as myself? Or am I guilty of loving myself more than my neighbor? Myself more than my love for God. Do a spiritual inventory yourself. How are you doing? What does God say about you? What is his commentary about your life? Do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Are you ashamed at times about this all-pervasive love that so consumes you about yourself? 
Confess it to God. Seek the repentance that only he can grant and say, God, give me a greater resolve so that I am a lover of you with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength and I truly love others as I know I already love myself. This is, this is not only the great commandment, but it's the great challenge. Is this not the greatest challenge of life? And the only thing we can do is expect that the Spirit of God would so infiltrate my life and my thoughts and my actions that I would do what Romans 8, 4 says, that I would actually fulfill the very requirement of the law because the Holy Spirit resides in me. You say, well, you've taken me to the, to the cliff and you've just about pushed me off. Well, I'm here to encourage you that 1 John 5 says that we love God and we love his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. You may think that it's the great challenge and it's the great burden of your life, and it is in one sense, but we have the resident truth teacher, the anointing from God, the Holy Spirit. We have God himself as resident within our life to take what appears to be a burden and give to us a blessing when we reach out to God in earnest. Will you do that? Will you reach out? Even to the people of the Bible church, when you see a need, will you meet it? And will you do it anonymously, if at all possible? So that that love for self will not be so engendered when someone else comes and says, Oh, great job. Pray in private. Seek to meet those needs in private if possible. And in so doing, you will actually fulfill the requirements of the law of God. Could anything be more wondrous than fulfilling the requirements of the law of God? It can only happen when Christ and his atoning sacrifice is claimed by me as one of his own, and then his Holy Spirit reaches down and infuses me with grace to live this out each and every day. That's the only way it can happen. Is that a part of your life? Is that who you are? Oh, that I, I pray that it is. Let's pray together.